over the past month, I don't think that many people will have failed to notice that there's a bit of a sporting event going on in South Africa. Um, anyone know what's been going on? Yeah, yeah. But what's been going on in South Africa? Those might have been going on other places. I think Mick knows by the looks of it. What's been happening? Yes, spot on. I'm glad that someone knows. That's, that's helpful to know that some people watch the TV and see what's going on. So the World Cup is currently taking place. Uh, we find that during this tournament, 32 teams gathered together to battle it out with each other to see who would become the world champions of football. Uh, three years ago is actually where this started. So 200 teams uh, have battled it out to even get to that point of the 32 that have been in South Africa. It's quite a lot of countries have been knocked out, you can see. Um, unfortunately, one of those is Wales. I do have to say that uh, if we had been playing Germany, of course we would have beaten them. But we're waiting for our day of victory when we will beat uh, England uh, in March this year. No, next year even, uh, in the qualifiers. So we'll have you. Anyway, <laughs> it's been an, an incredible tournament. Uh, I think some of the highlights has been uh, a certain thing called a Vuvuzela. So I hope this comes out. Very familiar sounds, I'm sure you'll admit. So that's been a very familiar sound. There's been lots of things we've been introduced to. Uh, there's been some amazing games that have taken place, and it all ends today. You weren't supposed to cheer. You were supposed to be sad that it finishes today. So it, it does finish today. So for those of you who don't like football, you can now turn on your TV after today. Uh, for those of you who do enjoy football, you've got endless days of doing nothing. You know, life's coming to an end for you, I'm afraid now. There's nothing to do until uh, the football season starts up again. Sorry? <laughs> yes. It's two weeks time, that's right. Yeah, so it's, you've got two weeks of nothingness. Anyway, today I'm going to be preaching on the greatest victory ever. Uh, I wonder what comes to mind when you hear that phrase. I've put up a, a couple of pictures, no I haven't, Phil has, um, of what might go through your mind when you think about victory. So if you enjoy football, which it's clear that only a few of us do, your mind go, might go to England winning the World Cup in 1966. Or if perhaps you're a Manchester United fan, uh, your mind might go to something like uh, 1999 when they beat Bayern Munich in the final uh, of the European champions and they, they did it in stoppage time. It was quite um, an amazing match. It goes down in history for that one. Or possibly, if like me, you're a Cardiff City fan and you support the greatest team in the world, then your mind will go back to 1927. Mine doesn't. <laughs> when, uh, when we won the FA Cup final. The only Welsh team to manage to do so. Anyway, uh, let's go to a different team. Perhaps you, you like rugby, and your mind, if you're like me, would go to something like uh, 2008 or 2005 when we won the Grand Slam. Uh, particularly goes to those great victories over England during those times. Really enjoyed those. It's good being a Welshman. Um, or perhaps your mind goes to cricket. Um, I did this before I heard about the result today in, with Bangladesh, by the way. So your mind might go to the Ashes in 2005, which was quite uh, a good victory. If you haven't heard, by the way, Silas, Bangladesh beat England today uh, for the first time in 20 years. So uh, it's not such a good day for them. 
Or perhaps you're a military person and your mind might go to some of the, the great battles that have taken place and the great wars that have been won. Or perhaps you're a tennis fan like my wife and uh, your mind goes to people like Roger Federer, uh, who's kind of dominated tennis for quite a time now. Or perhaps like a certain man sitting over there, Chris, uh, you, you enjoy F1. So your mind might go to people like Ayrton Senna or Michael Schumacher who dominated F1. Or it might go to Jensen Button and uh, Lewis Hamilton today who are uh, in the British Grand Prix. We'll see which one of them wins or which one of them comes last. So there's many victories that our minds might go to. These are just a, a few examples. But what these victories do is that we kind of uh, link up with them and we, we feel a sense of victory being part of these. So today I'm going to be talking about the greatest victory. So I just wonder what, what the greatest victory would have to entail. Well, let's have a look at what the actual phrase means. So let's take it step by step. I'm quite a simple guy, as Fleur will tell you. Uh, the first word is greatest. So we find that some of the words uh, for that that I nicked out of the dictionary is that it means to be impressive, to be renowned, to be superior in quality, to be famous of outstanding importance. What does victory mean then? Victory means to defeat an enemy in battle, to conquer, to gain superiority. It is a success that is especially noteworthy because it's decisive, significant or spectacular. Or in military terms, it's a final and complete superiority in a war. Ever, that's a nice simple one. It basically means that it covers all time. So let's try and combine the, these words now. So we're looking for a victory that is renowned, impressive, of outstanding importance, decisive, significant, final, and complete superiority over the opponent and covers all time. It's quite a victory we're looking for, really, isn't it? <laughs> Hopefully we'll find it. Otherwise, this sermon has... Uh, has you know, got to come under the Trade descri uh, Description Act, really, doesn't it? So let's have a look at some of the ones that I mentioned earlier. Could England winning the World Cup in 1966 be the greatest victory ever? No. I'm, I'm glad to say that. Um, for example, Steve doesn't enjoy football. So to him, that World Cup meant nothing. It had no significance to him. He's nodding. I'm glad about that. So we also find that it wasn't final. So England go back every four years in order to try and win the World Cup back. They've been trying for 44 years. <laughs> you think they get the hint by now. Is it perhaps World War II? Again, no. Why not? Again, it wasn't final. The Bible tells us very clearly that there will continue to be battles and wars as long as uh, the days go on until Christ returns. So it's not the final battle. So again, it wasn't that war. It wasn't any war. This one's for Fleur. Was it Roger Federer's domination of tennis? Again, no. Why not? Well, we find that he's starting to lose games. He didn't even get into the final of Wimbledon this year. So he's starting to, to lose his grip on tennis. And we find that he's not the world number one and he doesn't have superiority over every player. So it's not even Roger Federer. So what is the greatest victory ever? 
Sorry, Fleur, I know you're upset. <laughs> I would like to suggest to you that a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago was the greatest victory ever. At this point, you might disagree with me. You might say that if someone died, how could that have been a victory? Death means that someone has beaten him. Again, I want to tell you that the greatest victory ever was won on a cross 2,000 years ago. How can it be? I want to just uh, show you that this morning. Uh, We're going to use Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. Don't have to turn to it. I've written it up there for you. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I'm going to leave this up for time so that we can look at it. What I want to do is give a bit of history to this. When God's created the heavens and the earth, he created humans to enjoy relationship with him. Daily, Adam and Eve would walk in his presence. They enjoyed his, his presence and talked with him. Everything was made for them to enjoy him. So they could talk with him just as we talked together. They walked with him in that way. Wonderful relationship. The whole realm of earth was given into their stewardship. There was only one limitation on them. They were told, you can have all of this. You may eat of all of these trees. You can have everything. Just one thing. Don't touch this one fruit. However, Adam and Eve were deceived by a serpent. They were told, did God really say? And they disobeyed God. Sin entered the world. Sin means when we do something that disobeys God. At this moment, shame, guilt, sickness and death entered the world for the first time. Up to this point, Adam and Eve knew none of these familiar foes that we know. Now they tasted them for the first time. Once they had known intimacy with God, but now they were separated from God. A shame and guilt separated them from him. See, God is a holy God. He is set apart above all things, and sin cannot stand in his presence. From that point on, every human has known sin, guilt, shame, sickness, and will finally know death. Satan had tricked Adam and Eve, and he put his foothold into the world. From that point on, Satan and his dominions have been daily reminding humans that they're separated from God. Satan daily tempts us. He distorts the wonderful things that God has made. He comes in and he says, did God really say? He twists the wonderful things that God has created. He tells you a one night stand will satisfy you. It will, it's just harmless fun. He tells you it's okay to lie if it precedes my career. He tells you it's okay to get drunk. It will fill that void. Satan is a deceiver. He distorts things. Once you give in to that temptation, he then comes and he mocks you. You end up, like we've been hearing earlier, we don't feel loved. We feel separated. You hide yourself in shame because of what you've done. 
Satan comes and he tells you the full record of wrongs that you've done. Comes and tells you of that guilt within. Comes and tells you you're a failure and that no one loves you. Comes and tells you that you're worth nothing to anyone. Comes and tells you that if everyone knew the real you, they would not love you. He traps you and he enslaves you to sin. You feel there's no way out. See, people through the ages have tried to deal with this guilt and this shame and this bondage they find themselves in. People have tried to convince themselves, if I do this, if I do that, if I do some great works, if I'm nice and help people across the road, actually, that will make do for the bad things I've done. That will make me a good person. Or perhaps you think, if I come to church just on special occasions, that will make me a good person. Or maybe you compare yourself to others and you think, well, I'm better than so-and-so. Look at what they do. Or maybe you even try and convince yourself there's no absolutes and that there's no God, so there's no reason to worry about this. However, if we're being honest with ourselves, we know that none of these are good enough, please, before God. When we die, we will have to give an account for our lives. Depending on our account, we'll either live forever in fellowship with Jesus or we'll be eternally separated from him and go to hell. I don't say this lightly, I say this with a heavy heart. None of the pleas that I have put before will be able to be strong enough for us to gain access to heaven. We need a strong, a perfect plea. See, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. It's only in this way that sin can be dealt with. In the Old Testament, we find that the Jews sacrificed lambs in order to atone for their sins. But however, that sacrifice was always temporary. They always had to sacrifice more and more lambs to pay for the wrongdoing that they had done. It never dealt with the problem of sin once and for all. That's where Jesus enters. When John the Baptist first sees Jesus, he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How could anyone do that? How could someone take away the sins of the world? You see, Jesus was fully man and he was fully God. He lived a perfect life on the earth. Although he was tempted by Satan in every single way that you and I have, he never succumbed. He never gave in. During his life, he preached of a kingdom to come where there would be no sin, no sickness, no death. Whilst on earth, he healed the sick, as we heard earlier. He cast out demons, he set the captives free, and he raised the dead to life. So why was he killed on a cross? See, Jesus was popular with some people and unpopular with others. He was the friend of sinners. He spent his time with the people that were rejected by others. If you were a prostitute, a tax collector, a thief, if you were poor, if you were cast out, Jesus was your friend. He went to those who needed him. This made him unpopular with the religious people of the day who taught that he needed to be separated from them. They also didn't agree with his claims that he was the son of God. He was handed over to the Romans in order to be crucified on a cross. Jesus was an innocent man 
and he died on that cross. He gave himself willingly for us. He paid the price for us. We were the ones who should have been nailed to that cross, not Jesus. Why should the innocent die for us? He did it because he loves us, as we heard earlier. Jesus loves you. So that's why he did this. The cross wasn't a nice death. It was excruciating agony. For those of you who might have seen the passion of the Christ, you'll know some of those brutal scenes. Jesus was whipped and beaten until his bones were showing. Then he had to carry his heavy cross. When he had got it into place, they then put nails through his hands and his feet. And then they lifted that cross up so that the weight went through him. He hung there in excruciating pain. Every breath he took would have been full of pain as he lifted himself up to breathe. Imagine that scene. Is that victory? If you think about some of the victorious scenes you've seen, is this one? This guy stuck on a cross, dying. Can that really be a victory? Satan must have rubbed his hands at this point. He must have been rejoicing as he saw Jesus hanging there on the cross, gasping for air, powerless, and crying out for mercy. This was surely Satan's greatest hour. He must have thought it's coming to an end. Jesus is just about to breathe his last breath. Satan gets his dominions together, ready to pop the cork and celebrate and to declare himself as as being victorious. But hold on a moment. Jesus comes to take his last breath. And as he takes his last breath, what does he say? It is finished. You can see Satan recoiling. He's surprised. He thinks, well, hold on, that was my line. I was supposed to declare that this is finished. Jesus is dead. This is my time. This is my victory. It's not his. What's he doing? How could Jesus make this claim? How could Jesus shout out that it was finished? It's because he knew what was coming. See, Jesus was raised to life on the third day. As Jesus was raised to life, he defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. That is what those verses are about in Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers, the authorities, and put them to shame by triumphing over them in him. This was victory. Through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus took on him all of our sins, past, present, and future. He paid the price that we could never have paid. Jesus cancelled our debts which stood against us. No longer would we have to try and pay off our debts ourselves. No longer would we have to try and do works in order to be accepted by God. Now they're paid. That debt has been cancelled. Do you know where your debt is? Your debt was nailed to that cross. That debt doesn't come back. In his resurrection, Jesus then disarmed Satan and his dominions. He declared 
that it's, he was the king of kings and the lord of lords. All power and all dominion was handed over to him. We find that those songs that we sung earlier about this amazing God, that's how he did this. This is the victory that he has won. He shouted, it is finished. Jesus has won the greatest victory ever. He turned a symbol of despair into a symbol of hope. So what does this victory mean then? So firstly, we find that Satan has been disarmed. Around the time that Jesus was on earth, people were used to seeing military victories and processions. It's this that Paul was referring to when he writes these verses in Colossians. When the Romans defeated an army, they would uh, get the enemy, they would strip them, they would take all of their, their prized belongings, and then they would tie up that enemy, and they would take them through in order to publicly put them to shame and show that they had no more power. This is exactly what Jesus has done. This is what he did to Satan. He's disarmed Satan. Now Satan has been tied up. All of his powers have been taken away from him. The victory has been won over him. Although he may tempt and try us, the victory has been won. Satan has lost. We no longer belong to him. He has now no power over our life. The victory was won. He has no power over those who are in Christ. We're no longer in slavery and captivity to him. We're no longer children of the darkness, no longer dead in our sins. But we are alive in Christ. We now have victory. Secondly, Jesus has cancelled our sins. Our debt has been fully paid. We can now know freedom as a result of that. You see, that there is now no price to pay whatsoever. I want you to imagine for a moment that, you know, you just go on a whim, you see some wonderful things that you want to buy, and you've got your credit cards in your pocket, and you go on a spending spree, and you end up putting thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds onto that credit card. You're enslaved to that debt. You find that when the reminders come through, showing you that balance, you, you're trapped to it. You think, how can I get out of this? Imagine with me one day, you're waiting there, and in comes the statement. Again, you sit there with a heavy heart, ready to open it and see how much you are in debt. As you open it, you look at the balance sheet, and it says zero. That debt has been paid by someone else on your behalf. Imagine the joy. Imagine the freedom that you now feel. That debt has been cancelled once and for all. I've got good news for you. You can know what that's like because your debt has been paid. Not the money debt. It's the debt of the sin that you have committed. That debt has been paid once and for all. Never again will it plague you. Never again will you have those reminders. You're free and you're forgiven. Although the reminders might come in from Satan saying, how are you going to pay for what you've done today? You should be ashamed of yourself, he whispers in your ear. We find that Jesus comes alongside you and he says, this is mine. I've paid this debt. This one goes free. 
This is what Jesus has done for us. He's paid the debt. We could never have paid it, but he has paid it on our behalf. That is the debt that's been cancelled that we see. Thirdly, we need to decide which side of the battle line we'll stand on. The victory has been won. But it's up to us if we want to enjoy the spoils of the victory. You see, if you're not a Christian here today, I want to tell you, as you've heard many times this morning, Jesus loves you. Again, Jesus loves you. This is the love that he has for you. He sees you as you are. He sees how powerless you are. He sees that you can't save yourself, as we heard earlier. That song that says, who, O Lord, could save themselves? He knows where you're at. He knows that you're standing there and saying, I can't do this myself. He sees your struggles. He sees that although you really want to uh, try to stop, you can't. You're powerless. He hears the horrible accusations that Satan throws at you. He hears those words that come day after day. He hears those horrible lies that are spoken when Satan comes and says that you're worthless and no one loves you, as we heard earlier. But Jesus loves you so much that he gave his life for you. It should have been us who were on that cross. But he took our place. He cancelled that penalty He died to cancel our debt of sin. He died so that we could live. He was raised to life, defeating sin, defeating death, so that we can live. He did all of this because you are important to him. Such is his love for you that he was willing to do this for you. You see, this is surely the greatest victory ever. It's a victory that everyone can know. It's a victory of huge significance, of huge importance. And it is final. It covers all time. This is the greatest victory ever. But you see, the decision is now yours. I can't make the decision for you. It's up to you to decide whether you want to know forgiveness, whether you want to know freedom, and whether you want to have eternal life. Jesus offers you that this morning. It's up to you. He offers you a perfect plea, so that on that day when you will see him face to face, you can say, my debt is cancelled. I belong to you. I think that is a strong and perfect plea. So what is required It's quite simple. Accept that you have sinned and that you need a saviour. You're powerless and you need a saviour. Then ask for him to forgive you. That debt's been cancelled. It's yours to come before him and say, please forgive me. Then make a decision to follow him. I've made that decision, but this morning, 
it's up to you whether you make that decision. I can't do it for you. I would love you to do it, but I can't do it for you. What we're going to do now is that we're going to be uh, singing a song to close our meeting. During the song, we're, we're going to sing it through once. And then when we come through to sing it the second time, if you're not a Christian and you'd like to respond to this and like to become a Christian this morning, I'd like you to come forward so that I can pray with you. Again, if you could relate to any of those words that were spoken earlier about this Father who loves you. Again, come forward so that we can pray for you.